CareTrust REIT is poised to remain a top player in the SNF space despite a recent 27-facility divestiture that included some SNF assets. Led by CEO David Sedgwick, a former nursing home administrator with 20 years of experience across the sector, there's very little that can surprise him or the organization at this point. Challenging workforce shortages and tightening margins continue to test every operator, with as many as 47% of nursing home residents now at risk of displacement, according to professional services firm Clifton Larson Allen. However, CareTrust's best operators have rose to the occasion, according to Cedric. While confusion remains over the Biden administration's recently unveiled nursing home reform package, which specifically lumped together healthcare REITs and private equity ownership in the space, Cedric remains focused on smart growth despite strong regulatory headwinds. I spoke with David to learn more about what he looks for in an operator when CareTrust pulls the trigger on a deal. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to remind folks listening that Skilled Nursing News will be hosting its annual Rethink Conference on September 1st in Chicago. Rethink is the premier skilled nursing event dedicated to trends, challenges, and the future of the industry. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com slash events for the latest updates on the conference and for other scheduled events. David, you were named... CareTrust Street CEO back in December after serving as president and COO. And obviously, you've risen to the top of one of the leading healthcare REITs in the space. But I'm curious, what drew you to the healthcare sector in the first place? Well, I started in the healthcare sector back in 2000, 2001. I had uh, graduated from college and was actually in the dot-com space, as many others were back in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst and I was uh, looking around for what I was going to do next. I was uh, young, married with one kid and the first of six kids to come. And I was uh, not sure what I was going to do. It was a pretty scary time. But I did have some, some friends that were in the nursing home space. I admittedly, I always kind of felt sorry for them, right? Because who, who goes to college to then work in a nursing home. That's from my, especially from the business school side of things. I I just had an undergrad at that time, but I kind of shook my head until I had a chance to actually go and interview. So I went and checked it out. I met with a couple of uh, skilled nursing facility operating companies in Southern California, where I was born and raised, one being North American and the other being the Ensign Group two very well-respected organizations and ultimately felt most attracted to the philosophies at Ensign. They, they really matched my, my interests because I wanted to run my own business someday. That's, that, that's kind of what I had in mind as I was graduating from school. And, uh, and at the same time, I had this desire to... Um, to do something important and to make a difference in people's lives. And there's few, there's really few sectors that check those boxes with as bold of ink pen than skilled nursing does. And so I, I started there as an administrator in training, ended up running during my time at Ensign about five different facilities personally. They're all kind of turnaround operations because that's the end sign mantra. 
had a great experience and then had the chance to work in our, what's called our service center and spent a lot of time recruiting people that were upgrades from, from me to run facilities for us. I spent a lot of time in the training and, and support of those facilities and involved in acquiring facilities and getting, getting those uh, cultures aligned with our own and just really enjoyed my time, time at Ensign immensely. Love those guys, still count them as good friends and still their number one fan. Then, you know, back in 2013, we were talking about this thing called a REIT. And I had no experience with REITs. I was just in the trenches in operations. But when Greg approached me, Greg Stapley was one of the co-founders at Ensign. When he approached me to join him, to be the only other Ensign guy to, to leave at that time to start it, he convinced me that because skilled nursing real estate, the value of the real estate is so connected to so dependent on the quality of the operator that it was really important for us at Care Trust to have operating backgrounds. Not that it necessarily takes one to no one, but it kind of takes one to no one. And whether that be vetting new operators or needing to find a new one to transition, whatever the case may be, we felt like that was going to be important to us. And it's uh, proven to be important to the company, but also. Care Trust has proven to be a, a really wonderful experience for me personally. I went from working with people I love and respect to work with people I love and respect. While we have less of, my one regret is we have less direct contact with you know, the people that we're ultimately serving here at the REIT. But um, no, nevertheless, we 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 have a lot of satisfaction in backing operators who we know are making a massive difference in the in people's lives both employees and residents and patients and their families and the communities that they're in so i think coming from that background maybe makes it a little bit more special maybe a little bit more mission i can't really speak for other reits but i just assume that we, we may have a little bit more mission driven culture there because of because we're so sensitive to that impact. And that helps us get up in the morning and and try to find more operators and opportunities to to do good. Wow, that's great to hear. You know, we usually we usually hear about uh, legacy leadership at nursing homes and being ingratiated in the industry at a young age through family, but it's it's great to hear that you find your own way to the industry. So talk to me a little bit about your journey from, from providing care to the capital side. What do you think you bring to being CEO of a healthcare REIT that might be a little bit different than, than others in the industry? And, and how do you think your time as an administrator informed you most in your role? Yeah, I think I, I was alluding to that just now a little bit. I think that as a nursing home administrator that, like I said, ran five different buildings and had some um, area uh, responsibilities as well. There's, I, I guess the way I would answer it is there's very little that will surprise us or that will surprise me personally that, that can happen in a skilled nursing facility. Once you've been in the business for 20 years and the, the bulk of that was in operations myself, 
I think we've seen, we've kind of seen it all. And I think that's really important for operators to have a capital partner who they don't have to explain the business to. You know, they don't have to explain that when you get a G tag on a survey or an IJ, that the world has come to an end and we're, we're just not going to overreact to inevitable bad news, right? Skilled nursing is such a challenging, unforgiving, difficult place to, to make a living. You have an enormous amount of regulations and economic challenges just in with the labor situation as we see today. No matter what it is, there's always kind of these headwinds. And I think what's helpful with my background is, is just that we're not going to get spooked. We're not going to run away from skilled nursing because things get hard. We've seen enough cycles in the last 20 years of headwinds, whether it be economic or regulatory. And we see what we've always seen is the best operators are able to tack into those winds and manage through it. So that's what I would say is probably the advantage that we have is, is just our commitment to it because of our deep experience in the space. Yeah, it sounds like your operators really appreciate that knowledge. So how have you seen SNF's relationship with hospitals evolve and grow over the course of COVID? Do you think skilled nursing's place in the care continuum has shifted at all? Well, listen, I think if anything, the relationship, the, the, the position in the care continuum for SNFs has uh, solidified. I think what we saw with what COVID was, no question and no surprise to anybody, a real beast for the whole healthcare continuum, but particularly with skilled nursing. I took some calls early on in 2020, in March or April of 2020 with uh, shareholders and with our board trying to understand just how vulnerable skilled nursing and the occupancy situation in particular was going to be. That's what they were keen in on. They were, they were afraid that, you know, it was just going to be catastrophic to the industry. And I, what I told them was that skilled nursing facilities for years have intentionally and professionally taking care of high infectious disease. They know how to do it. They know how to isolate. They know how to take whatever that high infectious disease is and treat it and do a great job. We've been doing it. The problem with COVID, I think everybody understands this. The problem with COVID and skilled nursing is not that they, that, they, that setting can't take care of highly infectious disease patients. Rather, it's that we didn't have the testing or the treatments were unknown and unavailable in skilled nursing. So when you have a dishwasher or a nurse who arrives asymptomatic and you don't have the ability to test them before they step on the floor, there's really nothing that could have been done better, in my opinion, by skilled nursing operators in general than what they did. That's not to say that there weren't some isolated incidents of, of poor performance there, but by and large, I think they, they did a, an incredible job as an industry with the deck stacked against them. Once treatments were known, once testing was available, and once the vaccine made, was made available, 
then you see the ability to treat COVID much more like the other infectious diseases. What I think that's a kind of a long way of saying, Alex, that we proved, I think, to everybody that we're as necessary as ever and that there's really no better alternative for that type for for those patients to receive the care that they need there's a pretty low ceiling up the acuity scale that you know you can of the care that you can get in the home and we just serve such an indispensable need for the healthcare continuum in, in the country I, I don't see that changing yeah, I mean, we hear all the time that the patients heading to SNFs these days are, are sicker and more complex than ever before. So I think that makes makes a lot of sense. How do you think some of Care Trust's best operators have distinguished themselves over the course of COVID? Oh, well, that's been actually really, really impressive and fun to see. Our best operators, there's kind of two mindsets going into COVID or even not just going into it, but throughout it. One, uh, one kind of mindset is to pull up the drawbridge and no matter what, do everything you can to keep COVID out of your building. And I think that's really understandable, particularly in the early days. I think most people took that mindset. But as treatment started to become available and testing and the vaccine, that's when the best operators shifted gears from defense to offense. And what I mean is they put the drawbridge down, they reached out to the hospitals, they built or designated units in their facilities that were COVID specialty units. And they said, you know, the hospitals needed to discharge these patients. They needed a place for them to go. And our best operators welcomed them, created isolation COVID units, and did a great job of of taking care of those patients. And it was that mindset shift from real defense to offense, being part of the solution instead of just trying to avoid the problem, that really on, on a high level is what distinguished our better operators. Oh, switching from, from defense to offense, I, I think that's a great way to put it. And yeah, I think it's been obvious that the, that the operators that have shown the most flexibility uh, over the past two years are really the ones that are doing the best right now. So what are three things you look for in an operator when investing? Well, <laughs> there's actually about a hundred things we look for. We, um, I got to admit, I, I wish I wish we could say that we've been perfect in 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 either underwriting or operator selection. I, I can't say that we have, but but we've learned a lot, and from our from our early mistakes, I would say we've developed a operator scorecard that literally has over a hundred data points of things that we look for as we vet new operators, but high level, a few things that I, a few buckets. One is, um, is actually something that I learned from my er very early days at the Ensign Group. One of our very first executive director, director of nurses, company-wide meeting the company had invited a nun to come speak to us. And I was scratching my head a little bit. I, I, I thought, what, what is this nun going to teach us about for-profit healthcare? <laughs> it turns out she was the CEO of a not-for-profit healthcare system uh, run by the Catholic Church, and she was immensely successful 
as was their organization. And the thing that stood out to me was her saying, and I was a little bit surprised to hear it from the none of the not-for-profit organizations say, if there's no profit margin, there's no mission. And really what she was emphasizing is that no matter what, no matter how lofty your mission is or how mission-driven you feel, if you're not financially viable, if you're not financially disciplined, you're not going to be in a position to execute on that mission. And, and so that's one thing that we look for, Alex. We look for operators who really have both the, the financial you know, competency and discipline and systems, but that are very driven to make this world a better place and provide great care. If we're speaking with a new operator for the first time and we're an hour into it and all that we hear from them is financial stuff, maybe that's what they want. Maybe that's what they're expecting us to want to hear as a read. I don't know. But if that's all we hear, we, we walk away. We really need to see a real balance between culture and care and the, and the systems to make, make sure that mission is sustainable. A second thing I would say is that they, they have sort of this, that the, exec, that the senior team, particularly the owner and CEO, have this grit, this, this hustle to them. It is such a hard industry to be in. And we've seen that operators whose senior leadership take a more uh, hands-off approach just don't provide the, the level of leadership and management that the facilities need. Third thing I would say is, I'm not saying that all operators need to be this way, but we do get excited when we see operators who, who really give a lot of importance to the local leader. And this, I'm sure, is from our, our bias at, from Ensign and Plum, because we also have guys that have worked at Plum, this methodology or this philosophy gives way more emphasis and importance and empowerment to that local administrator than you'll see anywhere else in this sector. And they're not, it's no secret. They, 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 they talk about how important that is to their model all the time, but it's difficult to duplicate. When we find operators who give a lot of importance to that local leader and empowerment for those folks to make operating decisions, whether that be how much they pay or who they contract with or how they're going to position their facility, we get really excited about those. So those are, those are three things that, um, that matter to us as we vet new operators. No, thank you for that. I mean, I, I think it's awesome to hear how you guys, how you're working together with, with operators to, to build a better sector. So, uh, yeah, switching gears here a little bit to more of a legislative outlook, whether it's through Biden's nursing home reform package released earlier this year or in other state legislation that's been proposed, there seems to be a lot of activity and momentum around a national staffing standard for nursing homes. Do you think a national minimum staffing standard is, is coming for the industry? And, and how do you think it would impact your operators most? Based on conversations I've had with 
folks that are a lot smarter than me and and much more plugged in to what's happening in Washington D.C. It doesn't it doesn't seem to me that that that's going to pass. Now you know when when you're talking about Washington D.C. and regulations, it's it's really hard to be real certain about that. But it doesn't seem like it it really has the mandate or the momentum to pass. It seem I think most people view that on the surface as oh that seems like a good idea, but as you actually think about it practically, it's it's just impractical. At, at and that's the most generous way I could put it. Tone deaf, uh, particularly at this time in our business right now, is probably a, a more accurate term. The labor shortage right now is so severe. It's it's always the number one pain point, and it has been for 20 years. But the the severity of that pain fluctuates. Uh, right now, it's this year. It's been as bad as it's ever been. It's very difficult to find staff, as many have left the industry because they were burned out or or other reasons. And so, to impose a minimum standard, particularly now, I think is a real mistake. And what I've heard from, again, people more plugged in than I am in DC, is that they just don't have that mandate to make it happen. And as we go into the midterms, everything I'm reading suggests that the House uh, and possibly Senate will turn red. And so what they can really make stick is, is really uncertain and hopefully unlikely at this point. Well, I think a lot of people in the industry will, will be happy to hear that from you and, and certainly something that, that will be following very closely. Can you tell me what, what are the regulatory headwinds in, in the SNF sector that you're following most closely right now? Well, that's certainly one of them. We, we're also following what the federal government's going to do with the public health emergency and whether or not that will continue to be extended. If you look at the fundamentals in skilled nursing today of occupancy, recovery, or lack thereof, and the operating expenses and how much they've come up and how sticky those are and and unlikely to come back down, it, it sure seems like the right decision to extend that public health emergency further. I'm a little surprised, a little disappointed and surprised that the Biden administration hasn't done more on the provider relief funds. Pretty surprised also that the Trump administration stepped up in such a big way that they did. I mean, they've dedicated so much capital to operators to help them get through this that for the Biden administration to not follow through with that and to continue that and give more is surprising. And, and maybe they have more coming. I, I hope they do. But now it seems like they're saying that it's up to the states to you know, ex- extend the runway. There are some providers that really have not needed much in terms of government money. But there are a lot who have needed it. There are a lot who will continue to need it. And if they don't get more support from uh, the Biden administration, then you, I think what you'll see is a shakeout. You'll have several operators that hit the wall that just run out of 
liquidity because they're, like I said, their operating expenses have increased and the recovery of occupancy has been so slowed by the Delta variant, then the labor crisis, and then Omicron, et cetera, that it, so that's one thing that I watch and, and hope for and lobby for that, that we might get more federal funding for those who really need it to continue their recovery. Yeah, I mean, the American Healthcare Association projected earlier this year 400 nursing homes to close. So certainly, certainly that federal funding is, is going to be uh, essential for some of those operators and really something that we look for as well. What do you think the biggest challenge facing nursing homes that, that scares you the most right now? Well, I think I, I think I just described it. It's really, it's really that combination of a slower than hoped for recovery to occupancy matched with these, this labor market. You know, it's, it's one thing for occupancy to recover slowly. Uh, that's, that's not that big of a concern in normal circumstances because operators can right-size their operating expenses to the uh, census or occupancy that, that they actually have. But when they have to do that in an environment when you have agency staffing agencies just absolutely abusing the opportunity and charging enormous amounts for their services, uh, it makes it really difficult. So what, I, what I'm concerned about most is really the next 12 to 18 months as folks start running out of provider relief funds. And, and if they haven't been able to make the turn to at least break even and profitability again in the current circumstances, then that, that could be a challenge. Although at the same time for us, that, that challenge presents real opportunities for, for growth because we, you know, I think that's going to bring buildings to, to the market and, and we would look to, to acquire those and, and give those opportunities to our great operators to, to make the, the turnaround happen. So yeah, that's, that's, that's probably what, what I'm looking at for the next 12 to 18 months. And, and f- further down the road, you really do have this wave, this demographic wave of baby boomers who are hitting their 75 and 80s that we've been talking about and thinking about really since I started back 20 years ago. But now is the time. Before COVID hit, the projections that I was seeing had 2025 as the time where occupancy really started growing in a meaningful way countrywide. And I haven't seen the math rerun since COVID, so I don't know if we've lost a year or two on that. But this next couple of years are really important to get us to, you know, those demographics that will be hitting inevitably in the future years to come. I think that makes a ton of sense, and I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. You know, during Care Trust's last earnings call, it was discussed that skilled nursing makes up roughly 80 to 85% of the company's overall portfolio. Is that the target you're trying to hit moving forward? Or what do you look for when, when considering acquiring a new SNF facility? Yeah, Alex. So when it comes to our mix of assets, whether they be skilled nursing, assisted living, or now what we just talked about also recently is going into the behavioral health space, we don't have a, we don't have a, a stated mix that we're going for. It just so happens that that's what we're at. 
we're comfortable in skilled nursing, we're comfortable in seniors housing, and we're becoming more comfortable in the behavioral health space. So when a deal crosses our desk, regardless of asset class, we're going to underwrite it. And the, the first and last question that we answer is, who is the operator going to be? Is there a great uh, match between an operator that we have a great relationship with that we, we admire and want to grow with and this particular opportunity? And that is really what drives it for us much more than actually we don't, like I said, we don't at all have a target mix there. We want to we wanna play in, our, in the lanes that we feel the most confident and comfortable with and that we have outstanding operators that we know can take poorly run facilities and make them good or good facilities and make them better. Absolutely. Over the course of COVID, we've seen price per bed valuation skyrocket in certain areas. How has this impacted in pe- investing for care trust? What makes a facility good, too good to pass up for you guys? Oh, yeah. The, the pricing during COVID has, has caused a lot of us to scratch our heads. It hasn't made a whole lot of sense if you're looking at traditional valuation metrics. Most buyers of skilled nursing facilities look at the cash flow that's produced based on that facility. And we, we somehow come up with a valuation based on those cash flows. Traditional ca- uh, cash flow valuation doesn't seem to be what's driving some of these high prices. It seems to be a different approach that uh, private buyers are, are using where they have ancillary businesses in addition to the cash flows of the facilities. And the ancillary businesses for the facility are benefit from bringing in this facility into their umbrella, and they're able to achieve some higher valuations that way. How sustainable that is, we'll have to wait and see. We also you know, understand that there's new money to the space. In other words, traditional commercial real estate buyers, whether it be multifamily or some other asset class, as interest rates are rising, there's less of a, a profit to be made on those other asset classes. And they look over here and they say, oh my gosh, these guys are, these skilled nursing's paying 12 caps. I need to get, I need to get over there. And because they don't have the long experience in operations, I'm not sure how sustainable a lot of that pricing is. Again, that might mean that we're needing to be on the sidelines a little bit, but that's okay. We're happy to do that. We're going to be disciplined in our acquisitions. If And then we'll just see. We'll see how sustainable that pricing was. And maybe these things will, these facilities will come back later if uh, people paid too much for it. That's certainly happened before. It's, it's happened not just for private buyers. We've all, we've all made mistakes overpaying for assets in the past. And we'll just see how that plays out. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit more about some of the deal trends you're seeing in, in the SNF space. Do you expect Care Trust to be less or more active in the SNF market in the second half of 2022 than it was in the first half? Well, th- we expect to be active for sure. We, we never took our foot off the pedal of acquisitions since 
COVID started. We, we've um, continued to underwrite. We've continued to send in LOIs. In, two, in 2020, it was, serious, it was certainly difficult to find an operator who wanted to, to grow as everybody was kind of in the drawbridge up mentality. Going into 21, that changed. No, we're, we're, we're definitely going to be active. There's kind of a long lead time for getting deals done. Uh, we quote a, a pipeline of acquisitions somewhere in the 150 million. And, and that pipeline, the, the nature of it, it changes day to day, week to week. Things drop off. Uh, other deals are added. But that seems to be a pretty good uh, rule of thumb for us going forward. We're excited to, to do things. Like you said, pricing is high. And so the way we've been able to grow in recent quarters has really been off-market deals or deals that blow up. And then they come to us because they know we'll get the, the deal across. Right? We don't have to, there's no financing contingencies with us. And so because of that, we may not be the highest price, but we can close. And I think what we've, we've earned a, a, a reputation in the space as being guys who, who do it, we say we're going to do. We don't retrade you the 11th hour to try to get a lower price. And, we, um, and we're dependable. Yeah, absolutely. So a big topic for every operator has been occupancy recovery since COVID started. And, and we've already talked about some of the challenges that have come with operators that have been, been slower in that recovery. So just wanted to ask, like, are you guys on track with where you thought you'd be a year ago with, with COVID recovery? Hmm. No, I, I, think, I think COVID has made, made a fool of anybody who's in the predicting business. <laughs> I think early 2021, there was really high hopes around getting back to pre-pandemic occupancy by now. And we're not there. Early 21, we didn't have a, a Delta variant. We didn't have Omicron. We didn't have the labor shortage uh, that we do today. And so I think everybody's a little bit more gun-shy in, in predicting. And, and those of us who did are humbled, I guess, by by what COVID has, has done to us. Uh, what I'd say is we have a lot of operators and a lot of facilities who are at or really close to pre-pandemic occupancy and overall performance, even stripping out government funding or government relief for stimulus funding. So we're encouraged by that. We're really encouraged by the fantastic operators that we have and their ability to manage through this. Uh, early this year, I announced that we had made the decision to sell, maybe retenant, but largely sell about 30 facilities that we have. And these are buildings and operators that, you know, I'd say were on our watch list before the pandemic remain there during. And as we came into 2022, a couple of them made it really clear that they were going to hit the wall or that they had hit the wall. And that prompted us to look at the rest of the portfolio. We've stress tested it throughout the, uh, the last couple of years. And we identified a couple more operators that we thought, you know, may maybe the time is right right now to to sell these assets as well. And they agreed. 
And so we're in the midst of that process. Uh, most of the facilities at this stage are at the LOI stage, and we're negotiating purchase and sale agreements. We hope to have all of that work done by the end of the year. Gotcha. What do you think has been the biggest challenge for skilled nursing owner operators to overcome during the pandemic? And do you see a light of the tunnel as far as uh, COVID recovery is concerned in, in the sector? Yeah, that's an interesting question, particularly now. Uh, had you asked that question a couple of years ago, I, I would have had a very different answer. A couple of years ago, there was tangible fear in the facilities because you just didn't know who had it. You know, the asymptomatic carrier phenomena of COVID was just it's so difficult for operators to deal with. And so now that you're asking me today, I would say, you know, as far as COVID goes, it's having the staff, it's regaining share of the employee market and getting them getting really healthy there, getting turnover down, getting agency completely out of your facility and really being stable there. If you're able to do that, then you're able to continue to win your at the business like you have been in the past. No, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, final question for you is just um, you know another point of emphasis in Biden's reform package is better fi- financial transparency for sniff ownership, uh, and it points the finger specifically at private equity and other types of ownership structures such as REITs. So, I wanted to talk to you kind of about the place of REITs in skilled nursing and, and where do you see the position of REITs in the industry today and, and going forward? Yeah, President Biden's inclusion of REITs was really confusing to me. And I, and I think for people who really understand how the business is run, they understand that REITs are really not, we don't act in any way like a private equity shop. If you, have a, if you have a problem with REITs owning the real estate so that operators can operate the facilities, then you also have to have a problem with operators who own their own facilities with a mortgage with a bank because it's really the same. As a REIT, we have literally zero impact on operating decisions. And, and that's the same as an operator who owns their own building, but, but the bank really owns it because of the mortgage. So I feel like the, that's, that's something that I think maybe regulators who, are, if there is any that are confused about it, it's really easy for them to understand once they spend a little bit of time thinking about it or under, trying to understand what a REIT is as, as opposed to a bank, as opposed to a private equity. It's, it's not complicated. And so that's why it was so confusing to be included in that. I don't expect anything to change at all with skilled nursing uh, and, and the REIT relationship. I think REITs have proven time and time again to be a really important source of capital for the skilled nursing operators, not just to, to grow, but to invest in these facilities. We spend millions of dollars every year in capital expense improvements to the facilities. 
on behalf of our operators. We, and that type of investment to modernize, to provide capital, I, I believe it's a really important part of the skilled nursing industry. And I think it will be for, for years and years to come. Again, if you really just understood, if, you're mis- if you misunderstand that, then I, then I get why they, you might throw REITs in with private equity. Private equity has control, has influence in the day-to-day operating decisions. They sit on boards of the operating you know, companies. We don't. We're, we are very much like a bank who has the mortgage. It's totally up to the operator what they do day in and day out. No, absolutely. I think I think that's a that's a distinction that a lot of people are are pointing out right now as soon as that as soon as that reform package was laid out. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Dave. I really appreciate you sitting down with with Rethink and talking talking through some of these issues. Alex, thanks for doing it. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights on industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Alex Zorn with Skilled Nursing News. Thanks for listening.